1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Welcome to the Runners World podcast with me, Rick Pearson. And me, Ben Hobson. Today we're speaking with fellow podcasters Adam, Laura and Ned, who have recently launched uh, Streets Ahead – and I caught up with elite marathoner and COVID nineteen doctor Eleanor Davis. Uh, how you doing, Ben? You
3: alright? Yeah, I'm alright, thanks, mate. Very well. Um, how's your lockdown three quarters of the women's world record challenge going? <laughs> yeah, so
2: um, very good, thank you. I had a go at the mile um, world record. So that that for me three quarters of the distance was 1207 meters, and um, time to beat 4:12. And I actually ran pretty much four on the dot. So did it fairly. Easily this time, which was a surprise, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next? Yeah, 3,000 metres next for me. Right. Uh, so this is another long-standing one, 806.11, uh, uh, set by China's Wang Xinjiai in 1993. Um, so always, there's always a lot on bells there when something's been standing that long. But, uh, you know, I won't be cynical. That's the time to beat. So 2,250 metres for me in four... Mm. Oh, in 8.06. So, let's oh, see how it punchy. goes. Punchy, punchy. punchy. Well, I'll tell you what, Ben, should we welcome our guests of the week then?
3: Yeah, sure, let's do that thing. the <laughs> Aside from their many other talents, Adam Tranter, Laura Laker and Ned Bolting have a new podcast called Streets Ahead, and it discusses infrastructure, transport, cycling, walking and how the outlook and attitude on how we get about needs to change. Welcome to the Runners World well podcast. Hi. Thank you very much. Hi, thank you. You guys and your podcast is kind of focused on the future thinking of how we get about. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, that's accurate. I think um, none of us thought that we'd be setting up a podcast, I think um covid-19 has kind of left us uh left us in a position where we're sort of thinking well, how can we make a difference what can we talk about and uh it's been something that's been on my mind for for a while um and I've talked to ned uh about it uh, not a lot of people you know maybe having heard ned on the telly talking about cycling uh from a sporting point of view may not realize that uh how uh how passionate he is uh about getting more people sort of cycling and walking in, in all forms uh, and Laura, Laura knows everything about this. Laura, Laura is uh, the fountain of all knowledge, um, and uh, is writing regularly on regularly on this topic, in cycling and walking. So we've all kind of come together, really, and, and um, yeah, ended up talking about what seems like a niche topic. But I think, as you're discovering, Ben, this the the kind of topic of street design affects just about everybody without them realizing, and I think people are realizing it more than ever.
3: Well, yeah, I wanted to kind of fill in the gap, really, because you guys are, are cycling and, and walking in a sort of uh, approach, and we obviously quite enjoy a bit of running, and we have a, 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 a an interest altogether that our pursuits are active ones, so I thought it was quite a nice way to sort of um, use your guys' knowledge and expertise and, and sort of talk about how the, all the worlds collide and, and, and all these different infrastructure changes and how, that have happened and are happening during COVID-19, and how... And how they might sort of impact on future things. But before we get into any of that, what's your? Uh, let's have a rundown of how everyone's relationship with running is right now.
5: Ah, oh, well, can I kick off? Uh, it's Ned here. I, I I wouldn't mind just chipping in on that because running um, running has been part of my life for about fifteen years, and I feel uh, very attached to running. Probably actually um, more attached to running than I do cycling in terms of a, a kind of a sporting activity. Almost all my cycling now is pootling around to the shops and back so it's very it's excellent and it's the way forward but it is kind of utilitarian you know um, whereas running is what I do for exercise I don't exercise on my bike I, ex- I, I run to exercise um, I love it I've been kind of quite compulsive about it for a number of years and what I've found I live in London what I've found over the last two or three of these terrible weeks that we're all enduring is that I have started routinely running down the middle of the road <laughs> because because um because that's the thing to do and what i've noticed is because i mean you you stay away from people on the on the pavements and what i've really noticed been really interesting over the last few days is that cars what cars there are pootling up and down our streets at the moment have started to understand why you might do that cars haven't understood anything i should say car drivers <laughs> um They've started to understand why you might be actually in the middle of the road. And in most occasions, they've started to kind of defer to your right to be there, which is, you think, like four or five weeks, unimaginable behavioural change.
3: Yeah, and the sort of um, the bleeding off the pavement from, I mean, and guilty of it and have witnessed it many times, but the bleed from pavement to, to road as a runner when it was busy and when people were out doing stuff. Was, was quite commonplace because you felt you needed to move out of the way of people and, and to be sort of conscientious of your space and moving faster and those sorts of things. But yeah, you know, the, the, you, 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 you dabbled with death if you, d- you sort of went into the road too much, whereas now it feels like the, the best place to be.
5: Yeah, I mean, with, with my other hat on, the only time I've ended up in, in hospital after a bike accident um, was because of a pedestrian and not a car. Um, not a runner, as it happens, but there is that kind of like in normal times, sort of pre-COVID times, there is that in terms of the built environment, that very, very dodgy gray area just on the road, just off the curb, where pedestrians quite often. And that, that's the bit you're precisely you're talking about, isn't it? That in normal times, occasionally as a runner, you just I'll oh, just do this little bit on the road. Um, and that is quite hazardous for cyclists, actually, because quite often pedestrians, they work, they're kind of looking for cars and and listening for cars. But they won't see a bike. And it's that first step into the road that often unseats a cyclist uh, and that creates a bit of collision. But uh, anyway, that's that's just my take on um, on those two experiences.
6: Yeah, it's interesting because um, I guess we see the road space as a car space. But um, maybe maybe the situation that we're seeing at the moment is giving us a bit of a different sense about, hang on, this is a street that is essentially a public space and is now an essential uh outlet for for many of us who are walking or cycling or running and maybe it was I don't know maybe we're starting to see it differently you know um yeah just I was standing in the road uh over the weekend taking a photo of something it was just in the entrance of a cul-de-sac and I had um, an uber driver drive up to me he was basically on the wrong side of the road but I think he wanted to sh- to prove a point and I was so outraged <laughs> but uh <laughs> He was like, "Get out of the way! What are you doing in the road?" And we had a bit of an argument. It wasn't—it wasn't very good. But I think—I think maybe in my mind, I was sort of—I was sort of reclaiming that space because there are so few, uh, so few cars. In terms of uh, my running, I—I—I I, uh, I, I only took up running. Uh, I think it was in 2017. I decided to do couch to 5K, and uh, and I got to 5K, and then I was like, "Oh, where next?" Uh, I'm not really sure. And I kind of I kind of stopped. And it's something I revisit at Christmas when I go back to uh, my uh, family in Somerset. Or it's something I picked up at the beginning of lockdown. Uh, but I years ago, I, I picked up a what's usually a running injury and I'd never run before in my life. I was having a massage before Ride London, which is a 100 mile bike ride uh, from London back to London via Surrey. And and the, the guy who's massaging me was saying, "Oh, do you run a lot?" And I said, uh, "No." And then I thought, "Oh, swing dancing." It's and he said, "Because you've got a shin splint on your on one of your um your shin bones," and and it was basically from years of swing dancing and doing performances on concrete. Uh, so that's probably the most impressive running not running story I have. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Um, I, I have an a on-off relationship with, with running. Uh, running is, is something I typically do when I'm very short of uh, time. And at the moment, uh, I've got loads of time. Um, so uh, I've actually, and also coupled with the fact that, you know, a lot of my focus is on cycle campaigning. Um, normally, I can't go anywhere on my bike really without fear of, um, you know, uh, being... Place passed by by a, a car driver. Um, let alone take my kids out, which is something I'm doing a lot on the bike at the moment. So the fact that we're down to 1950s levels of uh, of motor traffic means that I'm taking every opportunity uh, I can to uh, to cycle. But in normal times, especially when I'm working in London, uh, typically I will try and run uh, as much as I can for exercise, um, and I have one of those yeah on-off relationships with it.
2: I think one of, the, one of the things that's been coming up a lot um, for us is kind of running etiquette and the idea of, of who, owns, who owns the space, I guess. Particularly in parks, there seems to be a, a kind of battleground between dog walkers and runners, although I feel like it's been slightly hyped up, actually. Um, how do you think that architecture and how public space looks and feels c- can, can help there? Do you feel there are solutions there or is it just
4: around people being super considerate to others? Um, I, I think, from from my point of view, I think Ned and Laura will have will have slightly different takes. But from my point of view, one thing that that COVID nineteen crisis has done is is highlight to lots of uh, in inverted commas normal folk um, who aren't interested in you know street design how how woefully inadequate some street design actually is for pedestrians, whether they are you know or, or let's just call them people you know people who are walking people are running people who are cycling people who want to sit people who you know people who ultimately aren't in cars uh, or in in other forms of you know machines and that kind of uh, in this time of crisis that kind of exacerbates because you need the the space and the distance and and actually um we found this kind of weird predicament that councils find themselves in where um, they some of them are inclined to close the park to stop people gathering, but then people you know gather that don't no one goes out to gather on purpose really a, a very, very small minority but people inadvertently then gather in the streets and areas around that because they're not designed for people uh, or pedestrians and those that um, are leaving their parks open um you know obviously, kind of maybe see the bigger picture but even then you see if there are levels of overcrowding it's you know it's purely because most of the built environment is um you know like take regents park for example there isn't regents park in london i should say um there isn't uh it's a massive park um but it's also you know around its outer and inner perimeter got these massive wide roads that are kind of a free-for-all for cars and there isn't really a very good reason to drive around Regent's Park. The only reason you would be doing it is if you are a contractor or you are, you know, rat running to try and get through to Camden more quickly um, or, you know, you're paying £6 an hour to park to go and visit the zoo, which I don't think we should be encouraging in, in central London. So, um, you know, parks like that have an inordinate amount of space um, dedicated to, to cars. And actually I think that's at the hindrance of runners and, walkers are uh, looking at some of the the photographs that have been taken uh, of Regent's Park and the kind of broadwalk and a- other areas they're taken with long lenses that make pedestrians look really close together so we've kind of started to victimize pedestrians and actually what it is is you know we've penned all our people into a small place because of the inordinate amount of space we give over to to, to machines uh, I guess is how I see it
6: yeah I think Hyde Parks a sort of case in point I remember having a conversation with someone. Um, from the Royal Parks about this a couple of years ago, um, they put in these, or effectively rumble strips on uh, one of the major cycling routes through the park. And you think about Regent's, um, think about Hyde Park. It's got this massive road around the edge, which is not really there for any clear reason. There's a, there's a main road that goes through um, just alongside it from Hyde Park Corner. But um, he was talking about using these, um, basically bricks, lines of bricks along the cycle path to slow people down who are cycling. And it's also a major walking route. And I and and he said you know the main uh, pinch point for us the main conflict point comes at the crossing and i said and i asked him is it a shared space are you sort of funneling people walking and people cycling in together and he said yes and i was like well there's your problem <laughs> i mean you you've got all this you've got all this space for for cars and then you and then you separate that effectively from everyone else but then you're expecting you know people who are running who are walking and cycling in the park to just be all thrown in together, and and you know, I don't see how that, I don't see how you're surprised really. But they didn't change anything. Um, I don't think they took my point. But I think that basically the the way that we design our streets and our parks does dictate people's behaviour. They take cues from their environment, just like a wide road encourages people to to speed. I think, um, yeah, I think uh, by sort of throwing different different users in together. It's just it just makes things very confusing and and yeah I think like Adam said there aren't that many other kind of places outside of parks if you're all kind of working from home at the moment and and your local park is the place to exercise maybe your streets aren't are quieter but aren't sort of super pleasant maybe you pavement parking then you can understand why everyone's going to the same place and uh, yeah and I think if there were more places that are a bit more pleasant you think about um, bits of uh, Amsterdam it's the city centre that do the, the, the yeah, the pipe it's called, the peep, um, is, uh, is yeah, it's an inner city area, but it's got these beautiful streets with trees growing, and there's barely any car parking, and there's a sort of meandering path through the street, and, uh, yeah, so it would be a really nice nice place to sort of walk or run and cycle, and, I, yeah, we don't really have that in this country.
3: Um, on On your most recent episode, your guest... Dr. Ian Walker, he made a very interesting comment which sort of pertains to this, which was that physical space is, is possibly the most important determinant in uh, over than thought and, and belief and in, in what we end up doing. So do you think it really is a, a sort of build it and they will come situation when it comes to infrastructure and people being more active?
6: Yeah, definitely, definitely. And we've kind of seen that now. The roads are a lot more quiet and obviously people have got more time on their hands because they're not commuting for work and many people aren't working at the moment because of the situation, but you are seeing a lot more people using the streets for different reasons. You talked about new runners and obviously we see new people uh, cycling and people walking a lot more. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's been proven in, in London, central London, new cycle routes have been built and people will use it. And I think, I remember when they were constructing the East-West Cycle Superhighway along the Victorian Embankment, which runs from Parliament to, it, it goes eastbound along the north side of the river. And before they'd completed it, there were loads of runners using it. And I think they still do during lunch breaks, people working. And it's really nice to see, actually, because it should be sort of space for everyone. You know, the, the street isn't, it should, be, it should be a space that everyone can use.
3: We used to do a, a, a weekly 5k race along that road along the embankment just not not a, a huge number of people but we used to do a staggered race where so uh everyone was given a handicap and you set off according to your your handicap and we did it along there and when that was being built people got pbs because we could just go in the bike lane <laughs> when it wasn't being used it was great And
4: um, because uh like because the built environment and urban design are, you know are, are fairly niche topics even though they um they they affect us all i think one one of the one of the points i found really interesting throughout the covid-19 crisis is um the uh, the 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 attitude and perception of what other people are doing and i'm i'm sure we'll end up talking about it in in detail but you know this kind of uh pegging of us versus them you know whether it's in a newspaper headline or whether it's just discussion on social media or whether it's people's own viewpoint when they're out there and We've now, um, you know, always used to be uh, cyclists that were kind of labelled, um, and uh, I wanted to congratulate you guys as as now being the hated, hated, but <laughs> uh, humans oh, no. on, the, on the street. The the accolade that you you you, you now have, um, and I think this is this is this is part of the ridiculousness of it because, um, you know, I think there are a couple of things that we should note. I think one is that every Street design, as you were saying, Rick, needs some sort of system uh, and built, uh, you know, built environment uh, changes people's behaviour. So, in a cycling sense, which is what I'm mostly talking about, you have, you know, cyclists should yield to pedestrians because pedestrians are the most vulnerable uh, road users. E- equally, um, cars should be yielding to 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 bikes, and in many countries other than the UK. We have what's called presumed liability, whereas, you know, if a car hits a person, a car driver hits someone on a bike, um, it is the car driver's fault and responsibility unless they can prove uh, otherwise. Um, and we have this kind of this hierarchy. We should have this hierarchy. And actually, when it comes to um, when it comes to the kind of discourse we're having at the moment, it's actually more about the 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 us versus them, which puts the total onus on the 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 person the people using this environment and often i saw i saw a video yesterday of new york where there's a four-lane carriageway going through the center of new york and then there's one of those really narrow footways where they're doing some building work so it's even more narrow and it's got because it's a fast road they put these massive metal gates to pen in pedestrians so you cannot social distance and and you know the the initial instincts for the social media commenters go look at those stupid people doing that and the actual point of the you know an urban discussion about urban design is like that should never happen where do we get to the situation where four lanes are given over to cars and more people are being carried over one and a half meter stretch of sidewalk um so that's the kind of conversation we need to um i i think we need to have about our built environment uh and it links in a lot i think with with those pedestrian um gates uh that they're made you know you're seeing when you do a, a when you cross a pelican crossing and you kind of get penned in this little gate until it's safe to cross the next side stuff like that isn't really for the safety of pedestrians it's for the optimization of traffic flow um and while it's probably frustrating for a runner to be waiting at a, a traffic light so they can get a gap in the traffic to run across Um, really we want more people to be asking themselves, why is it like this? And is this the best it can be? Because the answer is probably no.
5: What's the, can I just chip in with a question here to you experts, you're running experts. What is the etiquette on waiting to cross a road? Do you jog up and down or do you just stand
3: there? Oh, a hot, hotly debated topic. This one
5: <laughs> have a whole. I mean, you're going to start asking right?
3: if you if you pause your Garmin or not. If you minute.
5: pause your Garmin, <laughs> <Exactly. Yeah. laughs> what's what, um, what the etiquette?
3: Um, I, I mean, I think that the the, the the hopping on the spot is personal preference. I think it's people.
2: Yeah,
3: p- people are either uh fastidiously maintaining heart rate. So yeah. they want to make sure. So you know they don't, want it, they don't want it to drop too much, and they're you know yeah. they're mid mid tempo. They don't want to they don't want to lose any of the effort, um, or they've got a good song on. I think is the other thing. You can see a few people dancing away. True. Um,
2: yeah, I think it can be a bit of frust- I think it can be a little bit of frustration from runners thinking, oh god, you know, I have to stop. So the very least all I can do. Well, I will tell you what, I'll vent my frustration. running by up there. <laughs> <You> <laughs> It does, it does seem to divi- it does seem to divide runners i would say yeah it's quite a divisive massive issue, sorry
5: one. i've stirred up a hornet's nest and i didn't even realize it um <laughs> yeah. what, what i do what i have noted about runners in in these crowded parks and streets situation that we have at the moment is that um and i am kind of guilty to this to a certain extent as well We're terrible creatures of habit so if there's a certain i mean from my front door i probably got you know 10 different runs that i do and i there 's something quite nice about knowing exactly which one you 're going to do because you don 't have to think about am I going to turn left here or right here or you just follow the one you 've always followed you know so you can relax into your run, um, but that doesn 't work so well if you if you 're running through a park and it 's like really crowded, and everybody sticks to the paths don 't they i 've noticed that that some paths have appeared this is another subject we were talking to Ian Walker about they 've appeared from nowhere, you know like my local park has paths that didn 't exist a couple of weeks ago um, but then everybody follows that new path when there's a huge section of kind of open grass that they could just run across if they wanted to. and Do you know what? There's nothing stopping me running across that bit. Um, but you need to kind of flick a switch in your head and go, I don't have to do this. I don't have to be on this path. Look, mm. I've got the freedom of the entire environment around me, you know.
2: I I, I completely agree with you. It's, it's, it's a bugbear of mine, actually, particularly in nice weather, because it's not as if it's it's not as if being off path now means being in kind of ankle deep mud it's very very easy to run off-road in nice weather like this and yeah i actually think if you know talk to a lot of elite runners the vast majority of their miles are are not on concrete so it's not it's not a kind of second rate option for people to not to not be on a path in fact you might you're running actually might benefit from less kind of concrete based miles anyway so yeah i think all all runners should be should be getting off the path and I agree with what Adam said that I I do think the onus is on is on runners to move or to yield to pedestrians um I'm not saying that all pedestrians are are fantastic faultless path (laughs) users but I do think that if you're moving at speed and you're a bit more mobile then yeah actually just sort of common sense dictates that it, it should be you to to move out of the way in the majority of situations I think
4: yeah this hierarchy I think is is Um, is a valuable valuable tool to bear in mind. And um, unfortunately, also in the UK, we have this narrative of everybody should share the road or everyone should share the space. And we're all, you know, everyone's got a responsibility too. And when you say that, um, it sounds totally reasonable. But if you think about it, there is no way that uh, a car or a HGV turning left into a side street has as much responsibility as... You know, a pedestrian or someone in a in a in a wheelchair to keep each other safe. Um, You know, there's this thing called physics, which sometimes gets in the way of this kind of societal uh, uh, argument. So I think it's really sensible to look at it from a is a runner. You know, as a kind of law of physics, have they got a? You know, the a, I'm rubbish. I didn't listen at school, but like I think if you're running faster, you're gonna have more mass or something. <laughs> correct me. Um, and uh, and you're yeah, you you know, and if you if you knock into somebody or or whatever, then then it will have a bigger impact. Um, so I think you know, I think it's really sensible. The other thing that um, I would you know encourage runners, and when I'm running in London, which is where I do most of my running, I on the road, I'm kind of um, annoyed by, and I think more people should be annoyed by it. Is Laura, you you'll tell me what the stat is because I can't remember, but we are the you know we have the longest pedestrian waiting times in the world or europe or something
6: yeah yeah that's right i think it's i think it's one of the slowest in the world one of the longest pedestrian wait times in the world and i was wondering actually um about runners as i was um riding locally this morning you know the the whole thing about having to push a button to cross the road must be uh, a kind of added stress if you're running
4: yeah there's also this big business opportunity. There's somebody selling little things that you can attach to your knuckles like mini knuckle dusters <laughs> that you can use to press buttons without contaminating yourself. So maybe that's what you need. Yeah, someone always
2: needs an opportunity, don't they? Um, previously, I've I I've said it in a kind of slightly jocular way, but I've talked about, you know, could we have running superhighways the same way that we have had sort of cycling superhighways? Um, and do you think like a measure like that would, would be welcome in cities, or do you think actually that the solutions are, are more subtle than something like that? Hmm.
6: I, I think if if a lot of people were, were sort of um commuting running, which I know some people do, hmm, yeah. um then I I don't know because with cycling superhighways, they were the ones in London and I think a lot of the ones that have been built outside of London, um, have been on major um, desire basically so um, people have calculated where the where the kind of low-hanging fruit of cycling is and then in and then sort of calculated where they might be working and it's usually sort of slightly wealthier areas into places of business in in towns and cities but I'm not sure if um I don't know maybe maybe in parks perhaps I know you have running tracks uh, you were talking about in your last podcast about the there's one in Herne Hill I think you said that you were doing a, um, oh, a yeah,
2: challenge one in, on. You're uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um,
6: yeah. But yeah, I don't know. If it were a major commuting uh, thing, then perhaps. But otherwise, I guess people are running in their neighbourhoods, like Ned said, or um, yeah. or maybe, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting one. I I'm not seeing, sure what the
5: answer is. I remember seeing those mad designs for, I think it was, caught, it was going back a few years. They were trying. They were wondering whether or not there was any viability of those things called bounceways. Do, do anyone remember them? Oh, I do. I think so.
6: Yeah. Is it for pogo sticking mm, and? Um, no, it was like this. Some.
5: Um, it was like it was like what you said. <laughs> what? Like, a, like a running track, except it was even <laughs> better than that. It was kind of because it was kind of a trampolini rubberized running track. So you could like no you could lope along as if you were on the moon <laughs> at kind of thirty miles an hour. You know, as a runner. <laughs> And they were literally they were literally thinking of trialing them along the river at one point. Uh, uh, and that would have been a form of commuting by running on a on a bounced way. I'm sure if you put it into a search Why engine... Why didn't
2: that happen? That just sounds I amazing. think it didn't
5: happen because it was a fundamentally shit
2: idea. I, <laughs> 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 I think it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that can't be it. That, 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 that's not a good enough reason for the
3: government not to pass.
2: It. I mean,
6: they went along with the um, Garden Bridge idea <laughs> oh, for long yeah. enough, yeah. didn't they? The, uh, yeah, I was going to say the much worse way, than that. Do you remember that? That was a cycle route that was going to yeah, be placed down the Thames.
4: When you're when you're a uh, a city planner, of which I'm not, but from talking to them, um, you know, they're looking at the amount of people. They, everything in cities, especially, is a is a um, you know is a mathematic challenge uh, mathematical challenge to get as many people moving as possible uh in some challenging environments and um we we were just talking to um, Chris Bourbon for a future episode who's not only you know really keen on cycling but make sure that walking is is you know as much as if not more of his job um, on a regular on a regular basis and the reason is because walking is so accessible um and you know uh, 250 million um trips uh in Manchester each year are under one kilometer by car. Um so so these are um these are fairly silly stats that that can be easily resolved by getting more people walking. The issue, I guess, with human nature potentially is that we are inherently lazy, which is why you know uh people go for the most easy mode of transport. And if you make something really easy, people are likely to 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 use it. Um, so with walking, um, you know, we see some journeys that were walked now being overtaken by people, you know, maybe on electric scooters, for example, because, uh, you know, people, people will always go for the easiest and most convenient mode of transport. Run commuting doesn't, to me, I'm happy to be corrected, but potentially doesn't fit into that kind of, um, that, uh, train of thought because, um a lot of people I know at least who run commute you know are doing it so they can get a substantial amount of running in as part of their 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 day and it you know and they're of a certain i guess seriousness that will allow them to run eight ten twelve fifteen k uh into work and I think the beauty of the bike is that for a journey of that distance almost anybody can do you know do a five or six mile cycle uh in i don't know half an hour or so um and uh be able to kind of you know and it's a really efficient way of moving people about so i think run commuting as long as it's focused on the distance i think it will be quite hard to ever commandeer that amount of space but what i would say is um there is uh in parks as laura was mentioning there's a lot of um probably scope for the we we have these shared spaces which I think largely work, uh, but it depends what you define as sort of working because, um, you know, are they dangerous? Well, I'd argue that they're, statistically they're not dangerous. You know, if you have cyclists and walkers sharing the same shared usage path in a park or on a, on a side street, statistically very few collisions happen. Um, but whether anybody, whether the, either party is massively enjoying themselves using that piece of infrastructure is another, is another question. So I think especially where you've got more space, like in parks, having a, uh, often you have these dual usage paths. If they were actually split down the middle to cycling and walking, uh, and running, and that might be interesting and then we, we could have another podcast on you know cyclists in the walking bit and walkers <laughs> in the cyclist bit um but but you know these are all things that that could could potentially be considered
3: um so you, laura you mentioned uh oh no adam you mentioned uh, uh manchester and some stats about the sort of journeys and stuff and i kind of to bring it back to some some harder data laura you wrote about milan and, and planning to transform uh, 22 miles of streets into cycling and walking zones. Um, Basic, basically, after because the, during COVID nineteen, air pollution has dramatically fallen off in, in the city. Um, is it is it irrefutable evidence like that that's basically allowing for a stronger case to be made for these things to be pushed forward?
6: I think. Well, I think the air pollution in that region is um, is a product of not only transport. It's a, a significant amount of it is is sort of land transport. So people driving around. Mm. But it's also a very heavily industrialized area, to be fair, and it's got the Alps on one side, and then it's sort of there's not much airflow, so it's a very polluted region because of because of a number of region reasons. But I think what they're seeing in Milan, um, and what they are telling me is that, um, is that thinking about re- relaxing restrictions in the coming sort of weeks and months, they're predicting. People want to be avoiding public transport, basically. So although they've got a good metro system there, obviously there's a risk of infection if you're crowding lots of people together and people are going to be naturally afraid of uh, of getting onto any sort of public transport. And because they've got fairly high levels of uh, car ownership in Milan, I think it's like 51 cars per 100 people, which is quite high. Um, and they can just see that what will happen as, lockdown restrictions are lifted is that everyone's going to be rushing to those cars and obviously there's a huge issue then for for air pollution for congestion and also for businesses and one of the things that they wanted to protect specifically was the restaurants which have obviously been closed down for a long time and they're a big part of italian culture a big part of european culture you know sitting out eating a meal on the street um and if the cars rush back, then having restaurants opening with social distancing, which means they're going to need more space, uh, will be very difficult. So it's a it's part of their economic recovery plan, I would say, as well as the fact that um, they want to protect their residents, they want to enable social distancing. And um, yeah, they already had these uh, quite exciting plans. They did the open plazas and the new plan is called Open Streets. Uh, and so they've already done some of this stuff through what's called tactical urbanism which was learned from new york and it's basically taking paint and planters it's very low cost very quick to implement and they'll put it out and then people can decide whether they like it or not and then they'll consult and it's much easier to do it that way because you know people it's quite hard to imagine your street different to the way it is and you you know you think but where will all the cars go and actually people will drive less if it's nicer to walk and cycle and it's harder to drive so i think uh, yeah, I think that um, that that there's very, very good and sensible reasons for 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 cities doing that, and I think a lot of cities are going to be looking to Milan because they're ahead of us on in terms of their curve, and they're obviously very badly hit by COVID nineteen. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they how they how they do it.
3: Yeah, I mean, because as, as a sort of a case study of of what can be achieved, it feels like that's a super positive way of of using the situation.
4: The other thing that we have on the agenda, I think, is, is air quality. And um, this struck me the last time I did a, uh, a major run. Um, I, being a slight transport nerd, I created my own Victorian railway terminus half marathon <laughs> uh, in central uh, in Sassel, London. It has, it has actually oh, become brilliant. a classic. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, amazing, Adam. Oh, oh, uh, <laughs> um, Adam,
5: before you tell that story, can I just say, one of the, the first times I ever did a long bike ride... I I needed, just like you've just done, I needed something to kind of string it all together and make sense of it. So I decided to visit every single football league football ground in the greater London area and take a picture of myself outside. So I did it and it's surprisingly long, actually. It's like 85 miles or something. And then I got back and uh, I uploaded to my dad every single picture of me standing outside every single football ground in, in greater London thinking he by the way I was about 40 when I did this uh thinking that he'd be <laughs> impressed and he just he just sent me back an email saying what about QPR <laughs> so I hope you got all your Victorian terminuses done
4: what I realized from running to um all of these stations is that they uh, the way London was built with these kind of terminus uh stations on the outskirts um you know people come into euston or king's cross or fenchurch street etc and then kind of go into the to the other the other center um via the other means but the way you know naturally we've built big roads outside of these stations as well so especially on um you know you've got the euston road by king's cross uh, Euston uh, then going over to M- Marylebone and, and Paddington you're pretty much all across that corridor and it's an awful road it's one of the most polluted in London. In Europe. In, in Europe there we go um, so uh, it's it's pretty god-awful and I was running along it thinking I was running along it listening to a podcast on air quality uh, and it was uh, it, it totally totally cracked me Um, But it got me thinking about, you know, the fact that a lot of uh, a lot of people listen to this and a lot of your readers will be, you know, live in cities and be running and be, you know, hopefully concerned or increasingly concerned about about air quality. And I think one of the other one of the other kind of big levers, as Laura was saying in Milan is in Milan, in Milan uh, is um, it lost my roots then um, is (laughs) is that, um, you know, air quality is going to is having a big effect on on coronavirus. So Harvard University have done a done a study based on data in the US showing that own an increase of one micrograms per cubic meter, which is kind of the, the measure of PM 2.5, which is particulate matter air pollution. It's the tiny stuff that get, really gets into the back of your lungs and people are really worried about um the effect it will have on children. Just one increase of one point on that will have a 15% increase on the COVID-19 death rate. Uh, and other studies in uh, showing in Italy that uh, i again not a scientist, as we've already kind of uh, made clear, but uh, COVID nineteen particles uh, is effectively clinging onto tiny air particles as well. So it, if one of the things that might come out of this, and you know, thinking about levers for change to get our streets more pedestrian friendly and more cycle friendly could be that you know the alternative which is loads more cars because bear in mind lots of people will want to be driving around in private cars after this crisis because they'll think it's the safest thing to do um is is going to make the whole environment much much worse um so that's something you know runners can also along with you know cycle campaigners and pedestrian campaigners can can get behind because it because it really affects us and it is a great lever for change
2: And with with like the levers for change and and changing a city, presumably there's a there's a cost, isn't there? And what what are the what are the obstacles around um, a city like London becoming more pedestrian friendly?
6: I think it's just (laughs) I think it's in London. It's a. Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, just do it anyway. It's fine. We can just go out with some cones next week. socially distanced um <laughs> well in london's kind of i guess it's it's like a lot of city a lot of larger cities in that transport for london only only manages five percent of the roads and the other 95 percent are spread across 32 boroughs some of whom love walking and cycling and some don't um and so it's it's about sort of which politicians are in in place in which in which location and, and what they are willing to do and I think pedestrianise it i would love to see soho pedestrianised for example i just think it's ludicrous that people are allowed to razz around quite often at speed uh, in their vehicles around there and there's all these lovely um, small businesses and it could be a walking paradise but unfortunately it isn't and um, i know westminster council is one of the ones that aren't so keen on walking and cycling but i think i think it's sort of political will effectively it's not doesn't have to be expensive. Like Milan uh, has learned from New York, you can do these things very cheap. I mean, when they pedestrianized Times Square, they did it with some planters and some paint, and then they realised that no one was actually using the space. So they went out and bought some deck chairs from a DIY store or from from a sort of homeware store, and just plonked them out, and it was absolutely full within you know a matter of hours. And so, yeah, it's the only thing really holding it back is just having the politicians there willing to to kind of tell businesses everything's gonna be okay because we know that people-friendly streets, walking and cycling space on streets increases uh, business revenue, um, makes people wanna stop and sit and spend time in a place because it's more relaxing and um it's just about sort of communicating that to business owners who are quite often scared under very much understandably of of change so that's really all that's holding it back i mean obviously you need some space for deliveries but that can all be managed that's managed in other cities
4: i think there is a there is a uh, you know there's always a question of budget um and but it does come down to political will i think as we've seen um during this coronavirus crisis we we do when we want to have the ability to um, take some quite extreme financial measures to make sure that there are you know the right things can happen uh at the at the right time and um i think you know cycling and walking the most recent announcement from the gov- central government puts it about 1.2 billion pounds over 5 years which sounds like a lot but it's it's really not a lot uh at all for the um for the whole country for you know things like cycling infrastructure uh etc to, to put it into uh context they the same plan over roughly the same time time frame is uh for for a roads and trunk roads is 27 billion pounds um so so really and there's actually the same people who did a legal challenge and uh, transport action network for the heathrow third runway and were successful in getting the government to um claw back the kind of third runway plans are actually going after this 27 billion pound fund for 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 major roads now um there is lots of funding available you know having said that there is lots of funding available um for active travel schemes and and kind of other schemes like that um and it's worth noting that it's a really good investment if you have as laura say got that political will um and and kind of courage to follow it through for for every according to one according to dft department for transport um every for every one pound spent delivers five pound fifty back in economic and kind of health benefits to the to the community it serves so if you can find that quid uh in the first place it makes a really logical investment whereas um a lot of car driving private car driving actually costs society money uh in terms of you know air quality has an effect on uh the nhs it has an effect on productivity uh congestion has an effect on productivity so Um, the, the, the money is there. You need, you need that will. Uh, and I think that, that, that kind of will needs to come from a reframing of how people measure success. So, uh, every transport engineer, you know, in the last 30, 40, 50 years, uh, is really basing their success on traffic flow. So how quickly, how many cars can they get through a junction without, uh, without them stopping or without it being too much congestion? And that's what leads to those ridiculous, you know, long pedestrian waiting times. Or even in the case of the Euston Road, there are no pedestrian crossings because they're telling you we don't want you to cross the road because we would like to keep keep cars cars going. And now increasingly, we're seeing other councils not not loads, but like councils like Hackney uh, and and others thinking actually. Wouldn't it be better if we measured our success on how healthy our our borough is, or how happy our borough is, or the quality of life measures? Um, and that's the opposite measurement to traffic flow. You know, they're not. You can't have both. I
5: think there's a. I think there's a danger and an opportunity, isn't there, when we come out of this crisis and slowly try and rebuild the the economy? I mean, my great fear for the uh, for the the end of my road where there's a little high street with a, a couple of dozen shops. Is I, I I worry for those small business owners. How many of them are going to be able to reopen, and if so, for how long? I think there's going to be a lot of vacant properties on the high street. That's been the case for a number of years now. And there will, in order to rescue the high street, particularly the local high street, there is going to have there are going to have to be some brave financial remodelling. You know, business rates are going to have to be suspended. Um, they're going to have to be rate capping for. F- you know rent capping for private landlords etc etc and i think it's very important that people like you adam (laughs) um are 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 center stage in that in that discussion because um there could be some bad decision making resulting from that out of fear yes you know so simultaneously simultaneously people are thinking um this is a remarkable time we are ripping up the old order and there is the potential to emerge from this with some better things in place but at the same time there's a uh, there's a feeling that almost runs in the opposite direction to that of i just want it back as it was you know the, the the new the the phrase the new normal strikes fear into people because what they actually want is the old normal on steroids you know um, so, so 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 that's that that is the danger and and the and the potential all all right there isn't it i think in the same mix
3: laura uh, ned adam thank you so much for joining us um your podcast streets ahead so people should go and have a, have a listen to that is uh is on to episode three i reckon just about now so everyone should go and search that but um uh thank you so much for joining and uh, for chatting through this infinitely uh difficult and uh, interesting topic
5: thanks very much guys thanks for the invite. Cheers.
2: Yeah, great to speak um, with Ned, Adam, and Laura about that. Um, Hey, it's a bumper—it's a bumper episode this because I also caught up with um, Eleanor Davis, who is a uh, elite marathon runner. She ran a two thirty-three marathon in in Valencia, uh, and she was due to be running London on the weekend. Um, But obviously, that um, has been turned on its head, and she's actually uh, she's also a doctor, so she's working instead in in COVID nineteen. Area of a hospital. Uh, she's incredible, absolutely amazing person, very inspiring. Um, and I got to uh, catch up with her this week, and this is what she has to say. First of all, thanks very much for making the time to, to speak with me for the Runners World podcast. It's uh, I'm aware that it's a very stressful time for you, and it's it's just amazing what what, what I've been told you're you're doing. It sounds like it just sounds like yeah, just absolutely extraordinary to try to to keep keep up your running, obviously, but also to deal with. One of the most stressful professional situations i think anyone could could be in
7: yeah it's very different uh didn't expect to be here sort of a few months ago but um yeah doing okay under the circumstances
2: so i guess yesterday you had planned originally to be you know towing the, the start line at the london marathon and probably with an eye on on the olympics as well and obviously all that's been turned on its head and, and i guess you found that you were you working again yesterday in, in the sort of covid 19 ward
7: yeah um it was a bit odd really I sort of uh got up to do my run to work and then um as I got there sort of just before nine I was just thinking you know I was sort of meant to be standing on the start line <laughs> with all the other elite women um heading off uh and it was sort of perfect marathon conditions as well yesterday morning which yeah. m- made it made it uh, hurt a little bit more <laughs> not, not to be there um so yeah
2: odd. I'm interested in, in how um because I think a lot of people have continue to run uh, through this crisis and a lot of people have kind of come to running i've certainly found myself that, that running has, has, has helped me to to stay fit physically and mentally and um, what for you how how has running helped you during this time would you say
7: um i mean massively i think the first week i found it really tough um mainly because I, I was in the shape of my life, really, and I just had the week, probably the best week of training I'd ever had. I was really excited about what I could possibly do at London. Um, I had most of the miles in the bank ready to go. So um, sort of the first week was just pretty hard to come to terms with. With uh, I'm not, I wasn't going to be able to use all the hard work towards anything mm. for a while. Um, but then sort of when that passed, um, and I realised sort of the gravity of the situation and, and, and how... Um, sort of priorities needed to change. I kind of really um, was thankful to, to still have running um, and, and also a bit anxious that it was going to be taken away from us because I think for a period we weren't sure whether we were going to be as restricted as other countries in terms of not being able to go out running at all. Yeah. Um, so, sort of every run I did do, I was thankful for uh, kind of expecting on the news for Boris to say, you know, complete lockdown. Um, and you know, I've have taken my uh, foot off the pedal a little bit with in terms of intensity, um, but I'm still doing about the same amount of miles, mainly because of uh, fitting them in. So I do I run to and from work, so that, um, right. <laughs> that builds up the miles quite quickly.
2: Is it is it also for someone who is kind of like an elite runner like yourself? Does running have that kind of de-stressing aspect, or, or is it is it is it a bit more intense than that when it comes to the kind of the action end of, of running?
7: Yeah, definitely. Um, It's a massive de-stressor for me. I think when, when I'm injured, um, the the main thing I miss is is that side of it. Um, You know, when when I'm at work, it's quite intense, and um, you have some really difficult days. Sort of, you know, emotionally, um, it can be quite quite difficult. So, sort of, my running is my outlet. And actually, I find even the 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 faster running helps me the most. So, if you know, if I have a session, um, I can really sort of bury my head in it. And I don't think about anything else, and it just really gets any any sort of stress out of my system. So I'm still doing those sessions now, just because I, I love running fast. Um, yeah. Just for that, for those reasons, and and it gets it gets I get most endorphin buzz from from my big sessions. So yeah, yeah I've kept I've kept those sort of things in. Um, but yeah, running to and from work. So sort of when when I go to work and I've I've done a little run there, I, I start feeling good um, yeah. and ready for the day, and then. You know, when I go home, I find the first miles pretty tough. I bet, yeah. You feel feel a bit like you, you've been hit by a bus after a day at work sometimes. Um, but sort of when I when I get into it and, and, and stuff, it is it, it improves. And I sometimes decide to, to run the long way home, just mm. depending how I feel, and, and sort of get home feeling much better for it. So, um, yeah, it definitely helps.
2: Is there a worry, And I guess that it's naturally there would be that you would that you would catch covid-19 working in a in a covid-19 water. i know it's it's a concern for a lot of, sort of frontline staff
7: yeah i mean i'm i'm surprised i haven't caught it already um, mm. obviously i'm taking all the the precautions but it, it is really contagious um so, but I guess being a runner, I, I'm really paranoid about my immune health at the best of times anyway. Right. Um, and o- over time, I've sort of built up ways to to protect myself as much as possible, because obviously before big marathons, you know, before Valencia, I was still working on the wards and stuff. So um, I'm very sort of aware of protecting myself from it um, in terms of good nutrition, enough rest, yeah. um, bits and bobs like that. Yeah, I guess obviously I'm am, I am expecting to get it at some point. But, you know, I, I am you know, fit and healthy and, and, and hopefully it, it shouldn't affect me too much. But, mm. but you know, it doesn't always discriminate. But I guess, you know, it's not something I, I go into work and I'm really fearful of, really. How do you normally balance running
2: with your work?
7: Uh, yeah, so I'm lucky in, in that I, um, like a few years ago, I decided to go part time, which... Um, the hospitals have been really supportive of um you know i've sort of explained uh, about competing to fairly high level and um yeah they so i work i work 60 of a full-time rota so right. that, that works out to about 30 hours a week still um which means that i can still do what you know i, I do love my job so i can still do that um and, and train and, and i find i actually quite like having work away from training I found sort of when I went on a trip when I went on training camps in the past um I just found having all that time off in between I would ruminate about you know the session I've got to do later on and I wouldn't actually do I wouldn't perform as well um, mm. or, or I found that you know working in a way is a nice distraction from running yeah, as well
2: right uh, yeah so you've also got involved with this, uh, the 2.6 challenge we, we spoke a bit about that on the As up podcast last Week. Do you want to tell us what the yeah, what what challenge you've, you're getting involved with or we've done?
7: Yeah, so um I just got in touch with all the other girls who were due to run on the elite start, the British girls. um You know, there it, wasn't it going to be, a, there was meant to be a, an amazing showdown because of you know the, the depth of talent there yeah. at the minute. Four of those girls already had the Olympic qualifying time, and who knew what sort of um, shape people would be in the day? It was sort of going to be quite exciting. Um, and there were twelve, twelve of us choose to run off that start British girls. So um, I just contacted them and sort just sort of seeing if they wanted to do something together to um, mark the day and also sort of raise money for for the charities that were missing out from London not going ahead. Yes. Um, so we we sort of decided to raise money for Mind charity. We did. 2.6 miles each, which probably doesn't seem like much of a challenge to uh, girls who run sort of 100 miles a week. But yeah. I, I guess for us, it was more about the challenge of the, you know, the psychological challenge of not being able to race and compete that day. Um,
2: yeah. You know, sort of doing something together. Oh, I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah, I've seen the uh, the accompanying video on the uh, on their Instagram page as well, which is really funny.
7: Yeah, it was really fun. <laughs> it was good making that. <laughs>
2: Can you tell us what a what a week looks like for you now because i think it'd be fascinating for people to kind of work out how, like both from a running and a working perspective how what, what would a kind of typical week look like
7: i do my normal shift so tuesday thursday and friday on the normal wards right. um that that's sort of i'm a gp trainee at the minute so i sort of just it and i'm on a ward where it's sort of elderly people who've fallen and broken their hips yeah um And sort of caring for them in in their recovery so I will normally on those days I'll sort of get up and fairly early and pack my bag and run to work um I have sort of my breakfast when I get there yeah um and then hit the ward for the day uh sort of ward rounds and and speaking to relatives and things like that and then yeah I guess uh that's sort of a nine-to-five job yeah um and then after that just running home and like i said i sort of at the minute i've I, um, my coach has given me sort of free reign to decide w- sort of what i do each day in terms of mileage just because um you know i know how tired i am or or, or how hard the day's been so yeah. she doesn't want me to feel pressured to sort of if she sets 10 miles to feel like i should trudge around and do it just because it's on the plan right um so that's worked really well so sometimes i'll even run a long way into work if i've woken up feeling really good um and then, you know, most days I'll run sort of five miles to work and then yeah. I'll do about 10 on the way home um, with a few strides if I'm feeling good. <laughs> um, so that's that's what I do. So And then I'm doing normally, depending on what, so my wife's a doctor as well. Yeah. So um, she's a consultant in uh, emergency medicine in Manchester. So, um,
2: so you're, it, but, you're, you're both very busy then at the minute, I think. Yeah. Say.
7: So I'm trying to match the, the shifts that I'm picking up on the coronavirus wards. I'm trying to match um, when she's working too so that the time we have off, we're off together. Nice, right? Um So, yeah, normally that'll be on a weekend. I'll, I'll do the extra shifts on the coronavirus wards and the same about miles around that. And I, I sort of try and put my sessions that I'm still doing on the days I have off just so that I'm sort of recovering well after them and, and I've got time to chill and, and, and eat properly. Yeah um and then sort of I'm, I'm still fitting in about three gym sessions a week i managed to source some gym kit finally so
2: this is kind of this is kind of home workout kit, okay, is it
7: yeah yeah i've um ended up getting some shipped from spain so okay right
0: yeah
7: <laughs> but that's been really handy um and i will probably continue doing that after lockdown because you actually waste quite a lot of time like driving uh, uh, to the gym I agree, and things yeah. Like that. yeah so it's actually probably a bit of a silver lining that i've now got that and and, and um can squeeze in sort of the essence the strength and conditioning around being in the house
2: yeah i agree i think um i feel exactly the same i'm like we're we're lucky enough to have a garden so i'm like actually being in the garden compared to being on like a sweaty gym mat in a really packed london gym like i think i'd rather be in my garden doing this and like there's a few things you can't do aren't there like you probably can't get the battle ropes out or something but you can probably do 80 or 90 percent of the stuff you'd normally do
7: Yeah. I mean, at one point, before my gym equi- equipment arrived, I was back squatting my wife, <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend, by the way. <laughs> um, and she was, and like, like, I find that I need to load my... I, I get Achilles problems, so right. w- if I don't load them, you know, with the Smith bar, um, if I don't put weight on me and do the calf yeah. raises, then I, they flare up. So I've been getting her to sort of push down on my shoulders while I do <laughs> that stuff.
2: It's <laughs> it's amazing Sorry, how resourceful people have been, I think, during this time. Yeah, yeah, people find yeah. a way, don't they?
7: Yeah, I've been sort of stealing <laughs> ideas from other people as well, so it's been good.
2: Do you think that you'll will look at running differently once this? Well, hopefully, once this crisis is over, do you think it's kind of changed your perspective on on running, or or maybe just on life?
7: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I've definitely appreciated that I don't actually run because just to race and and, mm. and and to win stuff I run I run because I love it um, and you know even if I couldn't compete, I would definitely still still run. Um, and I think I probably hundred uh, well, percent will appreciate all the races <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah right I think everyone will you know uh, won't, won't be taking racing for granted again because I do you know I, I do miss it and I miss that that feeling of having a race coming up and, and the excitement around that and the buzz afterwards. Um,
2: so yeah yeah definitely yeah i think a lot of people will really cherish um what once they're back on the in a, in a big race it will feel quite special i think for sure yeah
7: yeah whenever well, that may be
2: have you kind of dared to have hopes for this year as from a running perspective or do you think that in some ways it's better just to to think, kind of short term and, and just you know week by week when it comes to, to training.
7: Yeah. Um. So when London was cancelled, I thought, well, like, in this in the summer I was going to do some mountain races and try and get on the um, GB team for the World Mountain Championships. Yeah. Um. But that yeah, that's in November. But then the sort of trials for that got postponed, and um, it just you know. So now I've kind of. I'm not thinking about it too much. I'm staying fit. Um. And and I'm just sort of sort of trying to be a bit more present with with the running, um, but I just get, I guess we just don't know, do we? Um,
2: no, no, exactly. Yeah.
7: But I, I sort of I'm fit and ready for, for for when for for when the restrictions get released. And I think I guess there's been some talks of, of maybe just elite races going ahead. I'm and I'm not sure about that, but um, yeah, I guess we'll see.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. It's a lot a lot of it's up in the air, isn't it? To to be sort of be confirmed i'm interested in your like just your journey as a runner was it is it something where you were you were always a, like a fantastic junior or did you get, did you get into running slightly later what's what been your your journey into it
7: no so um at school i, I ran a lot um at school for uh, in cross country but yeah. i was i was never very very good we had a really good team um at school actually our our sort of our school team did really well nationally we won national titles but I would be at the back of that that squad but actually our coach then was was amazing and he sort of valued every runner no matter their speed so he didn't sort of have faith you know that he wouldn't favor the the fastest one and and he would sort of make you feel appreciated no matter where you placed in the team and I think that put me in really good stead um Mm. Sort of, and kept me interested and in, in, and involved in in that through school. And I sort of think this maybe the strength I got from from there has helped later on. But I sort of drifted away from it a little bit at college and um, when I went to medical school. Yeah. Um, you know, I was a bit of a party animal for a bit. Um, and then I think I just I still went went out for the occasional runs. Um, and then I just decided one year that I wanted to run a marathon. Um, right. And sort of told my dad, who's a who's a really good marathon runner. Um, he's done, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how many sub three hours he's done. But <laughs> he's he's sort of sixty, he's sixty one now. But he ran a sub three last year. Even.
2: Oh wow! Right.
7: <laughs> so um, yeah, he was a big inspiration. To sort of do do a marathon, and and he, would, you know, obviously was quite keen for me to do it too. So we sort of he helped me with that, and we we we, we went out together, sort of every every Sunday in the build up to my first one. Yeah. And he'd wait. He sort of, I'd be mostly hungover on those days, <laughs> <laughs> so he'd have to wait a bit, a bit longer before before he could head out with me. Um, and then, yeah, I did did my first one at uh, Paris. It was, and I did it in, I think it was three forty seven, and I was sort of over. Yeah. I, I didn't expect to get under four hours, so I was absolutely over the moon with that. Um, and. Uh, I, just, I i was, I mean, I was I'd, I'd forgotten socks and things like that and you know I, I wasn't prepared at all and just i think i borrowed a pair of my dad's and i just had the worst blisters for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for weeks but you know i got i think i got the bug after that and I uh, just thought oh i could sort of do a different one in a different city each year yeah, right. so um and then each time i went back i just kept knocking sort of 10 minutes off and obviously you get a massive buzz from that
1: yeah
7: um
2: but I mean that's, that's, that's there, really. yeah you I mean you really have chipped away at that haven't you and that's like <laughs> yeah. you, you know you are always taking, like what an hour and an hour and 15 minutes off your
7: yeah.
2: your debut time and, and was it was it like that was it in kind of 10 minute increments or did, did you like or did you have a bit of a moment where you are like actually I'm good at this and I and you know and you knocked like half an hour off it or something
7: um i think it was it was more it was very much just chipped away i the biggest jump i would say was um i got to sub three hours without coaching so i um obviously i had my dad to to help a little bit but um uh i I did 258 um eventually um and then after that um i picked up a coach um and that's when i made the jump really when i had a bit more focused training i went from 258 to 240 so okay, I think well, yeah. that was probably the most significant jump I did and then after that had a lot of injury issues just um mainly because of I was working full time yes um just just wasn't very clued up about recovering and 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 things like that I was just just um trying to do too much I think um I sort of got a bit of a nickname at the hospital of Dr Boot because <laughs> <laughs> I was in a air cast boot more than I was out um <laughs> Uh, so and and, and each, but each injury, I learned something new. And yeah. you know, and you know, I've got to the point now where you know I'm, I'm sort of, I think I'm pretty clued up on on how to how to avoid injury as much as possible. Yeah. Um. Obviously, it, it's not completely unavoidable, but there are lots of things you can do do to to prevent it and look after yourself.
2: Yeah. This all kind of led to this fantastic run in in Valencia, wasn't it? Where it was like, you run two thirty
4: three.
7: was it? Yeah.
2: Yeah.
4: Yes.
7: so that was a really special moment actually because i think i trained for five marathons between so that london in 2015 yeah in doing 242, uh, I trained for four or five different marathons and got to, like, the like the week before or two weeks before in most of them and something went wrong and meant I couldn't run. Mm. Um, you know, one, one, one year I, I got um, flu, I think, the week before. Another year I got a stress fracture two weeks before. Oh, wow. wow. Um, and sort of the day before, Frankfurt, my, my Achilles just... We just got was so inflamed i even flew there and i couldn't run um oh, so right. i just had, had so. and then just before london uh the year before i got a tibial stress fracture um so and it's you know it's just running but it, when you put so much into it it, it it gets a bit you know a bit heartbreaking at times mm. um so yeah to to be able to pull it off finally yeah. um you know with the help of my my coach um helen it was, it was yeah really good day
2: yeah and it sounds like you were in really good shape for for when london might have been as well
7: yeah yeah that's a frustrating thing is you know at the minute i'm in the shape of my life but nowhere to put it (laughs) um i think we're sort of hoping for sub 230 um
2: yeah wow right yeah so but you know it it can wait yeah i think it's, it's remarkable what um that you've managed to keep running as much as as much as you are given what what, what, you know what you're having to do in parallel as well um thank you so much for making the time to uh to speak with me for the runners world podcast it's a it's really inspiring to talk to you and um, okay
7: thanks for having me on are are
2: you are you back on the ward today or have you got you got day off
7: day off today back in tomorrow
2: okay great well uh, yeah uh, thanks very much for um for for making time to speak with us and yeah best of luck with the running and and all the fabulous work you're doing at the hospital
7: thank you very much
2: all right cheers ellen thanks a lot bye bye cheers okay bye So that brings us to the end of this week's Runners World podcast. A big thanks to our guests, Adam, Laura, Ned and Eleanor. And thanks to you, of course, for listening.
3: The Runners World podcast is available on Acast, iTunes and all of your favourite podcast apps. Please just search Runners World UK. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do give us a review and remember to tune in next week.
4: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com
1: slash upgrade. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.